the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob France. Yes, indeed, it is. Good morning. Eight minutes after the hour of 9 o'clock, and we're underway on a Thursday. Not just any Thursday, this 14th morning of the fourth month of the year of our Lord, 2022. But it is, of course, Holy Thursday on our Christian calendar uh, here during Holy Week. It is um, a day of reflection, and I hope people spend some time this evening or whenever it might be when you get home, you have a moment to yourself. Kids aren't yelling around, at, running around you and yelling. Mom and dad aren't fighting or, or arguing or even just discussing their days. If you have a moment or two by yourself to think about what this day means and what we commemorate on this day, uh, the beginning of the, the passion uh, of, the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, that's what tonight represents. Of course, tomorrow we will... Uh, commemorate Good Friday by not being live. We will take that day to to reflect with our families. Uh, we'll have a best of show on tomorrow's program, and then of course we get into Easter weekend. And I certainly hope everyone will uh, have a wonderful, blessed celebration of the risen Lord on Sunday. So today is Holy Thursday. We're going to do our jobs today, but I want when you're done, if you can, take some time again, just personally by yourself, and reflect on uh, the sacrifice that was made, so that we can have everything that we have, including. Uh, the promise of eternal life. That's all the preaching I'll do, because I'm not good at it. I'm not qualified to be a preacher. But that's what Holy uh, Thursday means to me in this entire Easter weekend. And I know uh, everyone listening feels the very same way. To our Jewish friends, of course, the Passover weekend, uh, or Passover week, rather, is uh, extraordinarily important as well. And we have, of course, uh, sent all of our blessings and good thoughts to them as well. So that's where we sit as we get started on this Thursday. It's a busy one. We have three guests coming up in a half an hour. We're going to dive back into the gubernatorial race. Jim Bernacci uh, is a candidate for the uh, uh, nomination for the Republican Party in the primary on May 3rd. He wants to move Mike DeWine out of Columbus, and I want nothing more than for that attempt to be successful. 
The most important thing in the state of Ohio is to get Mike DeWine out of power, period, point blank, and for a million different reasons. We had a caller, actually a messenger, who left us the voice message on uh, uh, our website, alwayswrite.us, who said, will you do a show on this so that I can tell conservative friends of mine who are still leaning toward Mike DeWine, essentially, apparently, it sounds like from what she said, it's because they know him. So they have a comfort level, even if what he has done has made their lives very uncomfortable, (laughs) Uh, if you think about it that way. But uh, she said that uh, a friend or friends of hers are thinking about staying with Mike DeWine, and she said, would you do a show on it? And you know what? Between now and May 3rd, my answer to that is yes. I'm going to book as many Mike DeWine uh, critics as I can possibly do to explain all of the reasons why we should not allow that little bespectacled buffoon, that little Napoleonic tyrant who locked this state down and destroyed businesses, schools, students, employees, and families' lives the way that he did. Not to mention the lousy job he was doing before the coronavirus pandemic hit. The lousy job he was doing in job creation before that. So... Mike DeWine has got to go. We will do everything that we have to on this program to try to influence as many people to get rid of him. The very best chance to get rid of him is to have a competent, quality, conservative uh, challenger. And there is one. And his name is Jim Renacci. And uh, he's going to join us this morning at 935 to talk about that, talk about the state of the race, talk about the poll. The latest poll from Harris Polling uh, showed Jim Renacci just uh, beating the tar out of uh, Mike DeWine, 46% to 30%, and uh, Joe Blystone down there at 20%, still a non-factor and still uh, splitting the anti-DeWine vote, sadly and unfortunately, as he is investigated by the state of Ohio, sued, uh, has forced to re- uh, return over $100,000 of illegally gained campaign contributions and all kinds of other things that just make this a mess. Uh, so we're going to talk to Renacy about all of that at 9.35. At 10.10, Dr. Everett Piper will be back with us, as he is each and every Thursday, so this is kind of an appropriate time. And then uh, Christina Hagen normally is our uh, Friday commentator uh, and uh, uh, pundit, and she will be joining us today, of course, because we are not live tomorrow, as I've noted, because of Good Friday. So uh, we'll have uh, we'll have Jim Renacy, Dr. Piper, and Christina Hagen this morning. Now, we've got a lot of very important news to get to, and before we do that, let's start our day with our Pledge of Allegiance. So, Patriots, I would ask you now to rise. I would ask you to face your flag if you have one. If you don't, keep working toward getting one, but it's okay. Put your hand on your heart, and as long as you can imagine old glory uh, in your mind's eye, it will be just fine. If you are a leftist who continues to believe that surrendering American security and American sovereignty is what this country is all about, well, then we don't expect you to pledge allegiance to the flag of liberty anyway. Go ahead and take a knee next to your favorite ex-quarterback. For the rest of us, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. All right, nine thirteen now. Um, anybody ever see Friday the th- uh, not Friday the thirteenth? Of course you did. Uh, and there were a ton of them, I think. <laughs> uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Do you remember the the creepy kids poem at the end of Nightmare on Elm Street? Came out in the late nineteen eighties um, with Freddy Krueger. Uh, if you're into horror movies, and I'm not really. I guess I was when I was a younger man. Uh, maybe a little bit more so. 
But do you remember that creepy song was they took the kids' song of one, two, uh, and I don't remember what the original is anymore, but they made it one, two, Freddy's coming for you, and it was just creepy, and it made you just kind of like cringe, especially if you're young, cringe a little bit. That's how the people, the leftists working at Twitter right now are feeling, because one, two, Elon's coming for you, three, four, kicking you out the door, Five, six, I didn't plan all this. This is literally just off the top of my head. I got a rhyme for six here. Five, six, I probably can't use that one. I would get in trouble with the FCC. But Elon is coming for the leftists on Twitter. Elon Musk, who bought 9.2% of the shares, making him the largest shareholder of Twitter stock just about a week and a half ago then turned down a seat on the board because a seat on the board of directors would have uh, denied him the ability to buy any more than 14% of the stock of Twitter. And now we know why he did it. We talked about this on Monday. The hostile takeover was going to come, and it was going to come soon. And here we are today. I woke up this morning to the news that Elon Musk has now offered to buy not 14% of Twitter, not 40 percent of Twitter, not even just a simple majority of 51 percent of Twitter, but all of Twitter in a 41 to 43 billion dollar offering. He wants to buy all of Twitter and send every single one of those First Amendment denying, censoring, suppressing leftists who are running that platform now, send them packing. Send them back to their uh, to their Jamba Juices, where they can eat their wheat grass, and uh, into their into their gauge shops. Send them out of the public town square that they have completely bastardized in an attempt to silence conservative values and thought. Elon Musk is going to send them all out the door. And you dig it? And yes, I most definitely can. This is going to be so much fun to watch. It is going to be just the meltdown. The meltdown started when he bought 9.2%. Twitter employees, the leftists from the Bay Area, you know, because that's where it all happens is in Silicon Valley, and almost all of them are either Stanford grads or Berkeley grads, or they came across the country from the East Coast Ivy Leagues, and they went out there to be a part of this. And the entire attempt to turn the public square, the the town hall, if you will, of public conversation into a one-sided echo chamber had been very successful. And any time and every time somebody complained about conservatives being shadow banned, and if you don't know what shadow banned means, it means they don't ban your account. They just limit through their algorithms the number of people you can reach with a tweet that you make. So you may normally, re, you know, if you're tweeting innocuous things that nobody really cares about, you know, you may reach three, four, five hundred. If you're really, really popular, you may reach five, six, seven thousand people with a single tweet and get all kinds of reactions and things. But then if they, you tweet something they don't like about COVID, tweet something they don't like about, I don't know, statues of Thomas Jefferson, tweet something they don't like about CRT, tweet something they don't like about Joe Brandon, and suddenly you got five impressions. Only five people saw it. Two people reacted to it. Why? Did you suddenly lose popularity? No. They shadow ban you and your comments. So from shadow banning to suspending to outright banning 
and taking away the right to tweet and send messages and communicate with the masses, the echo chamber has worked since the beginning of Twitter. And whenever anybody complained about that and said, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you blocking this, this video that I posted of Dr. Robert Malone giving you extraordinarily important information about the mRNA technology that led to the profit jabs uh, built by Pfizer and Moderna? Why are you taking that down? Why are you suspending my account for sharing that? Because you disagree with it? Yes, because they disagree with it. And when we would complain about that, they would say, if you don't like it, build your own platform. And you know what happened? Conservative-minded people said, okay, deal. I don't like it. We'll build our own platform. And guess what? Parlor was built. Parlor suddenly, like a locomotive, like a bullet train, just boom, just, out, I mean, from out of nowhere, massive amounts of, of uh, accounts and subscribers, people were fleeing Twitter, and Parler was, was the, you know, was the conservative alternative. And then what happened? Well, the same Silicon Valley leftists who don't believe in free speech on Twitter didn't want free speech to exist outside of Twitter either. So they got together with Apple and Google, which are the two app stores that carry on their servers all of these apps, and got them to ban Parler from their stores. So now, hey, Parler, it's really popular. This is the Trump alternative. Remember, Trump got banned by Twitter, banned by Facebook. Here's the, the Trump alternative. Everybody flocking over there until Apple says, oh, yeah, we're not carrying Parler on our app store anymore. And Google says we're not carrying uh, uh, Parler on our Google Play Store either. So, um, yeah, good luck with that. Parler got destroyed. Now, it's still lingering, and it's hanging in there by a thread. It's got a few people paying attention to it and on it. But it was absolutely a locomotive, and it got stopped in its tracks, quite literally, uh, by the same leftists who said, we're, we told you to go ahead and build your own platform if you don't like ours. You did. It was really successful, so we had to crush that. So what's the alternative? If we try to build our own and they crush it, then the only thing we can do is cross our fingers and hope that somebody like Elon Musk will rise and take theirs from them. And they can call it a hostile takeover if they want. They can call it whatever they want. But his pledge is to restore free speech to the online uh, platform to to on to 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 big tech to restore free speech. I'm going to read you a quote that was included in the story about Elon Musk, who, by the way, just used four simple words to announce this on his Twitter feed, where he has 81 million followers. For comparison, I used to have about 35,000 followers before I uh, killed my account because I just could not take it anymore because of all of the reasons we're talking about shadow banning and whatnot. But Elon Musk tweeted this morning, or maybe it was late last night, most of us woke up to it, uh, it said, I made an offer. That's it. Four words. I made an offer. And everybody looked to say, what offer? And now we know. $43 billion, with a B, $43 billion for 100% of Twitter shares, in which case he would be able to fire the entire administrative staff, board of directors, CEOs, CFOs, and put people in who would actually support free speech. Here was the statement. Quote, 
I invested in Twitter as I believe in its potential to be the platform for free speech around the globe. And I believe free speech is a societal imperative for a functioning democracy. However, since making my investment, I now realize the company will neither thrive nor serve this societal imperative in its current form. That's the statement by Elon Musk that announced, I'm not just buying Twitter to keep it what it is, I am buying Twitter to make it what it can be. And I say again, Can you dig it? He has no intention of leaving Twitter as it is. He wants to make Twitter what it can be. What can it be? A global platform for free speech, where posting your opinions about Joe Biden won't get censored. Posting your opinions about CRT won't get you censored. Posting your opinions about the transitioning of young America. The intentional indoctrination and grooming of young children to make them into something that they're not, all to advance a political agenda. We can say that now. Well, let me rephrase. We will be able, when Elon Musk takes this thing over, to say that and not be banned and not be censored. This is so extraordinarily important to my friends. I cannot underscore it enough, and I cannot shout it loudly enough. The decline of free speech, free expression, the First Amendment in the United States of America is the gravest threat to our democracy we face. It really is. And when I say our democracy, correct, we are not a democracy. People like to do that. We are a a representative republic, a constitutional republic. But the democracy, or democracy rather, is the system by which we, uh, we operate. And democracy and freedom are under attack when we don't have a First Amendment. And essentially what has happened here, the way I led it this morning when I was updating the webpage, alwaysright.us, Elon Musk has offered to buy back the First Amendment. Or, perhaps a better way to say it, he has offered to pay the ransom for the First Amendment, which was taken hostage by the leftists in Silicon Valley. The price of that hostage payment, that uh, that ransom, the price of that, $43 billion. Don't feel sorry for Elon, by the way. He was worth, when this whole thing started, an estimated $280 billion. $43 billion is, is you know a few bucks that he found in a coat that he hadn't worn in a while. It's no big deal to him. It is a huge deal to all of us. The price of free speech is being paid, and now we just have to see how this whole thing plays out and see how long it is before we have Silicon Valley Twitter leftists all lining up on the Golden Gate Bridge. And I don't use that to make fun, obviously, of people who take their lives. But, I mean, seriously, they are just screaming about how everything is over. It's ruined. Uh, And they are going to, at least from a professional standpoint, commit career suicide as they bail, rather than work for somebody who insists on freedom and free speech and First Amendment principles being followed by this massive, massive company. All right, I want to hear from you on this. Today is kind of like a free-for-all Friday since we're not live tomorrow. So dial up 216-901-0945, 888 you got thoughts on Elon and Twitter? I will, if he buys control, reopen my Twitter account. I'll start it from scratch. I had 35,000 people. I'll have zero. But I'll come back on if they do this the right way. How about you? Join us. We'll talk about it together. Always Right Radio.
You know, I went on the radio uh, la, 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 last year. I guess it was right around the time that we realized that uh, President Trump was not going to be able to keep his job and the, the theft of the election was complete. Something that I still believe to this very day. But I remember thinking about, you know, the banning of Trump from the platform, and I said, I had all these grand ideas. I said, it's going to take a billionaire like Donald Trump to, you know, to try to, to, try to break through this, this big tech leftist, uh, you know, hold that they have on everything. It's going to take a Donald Trump. I even said this to him during my interview with him last June. I said, you know what, Mr. President, I'm looking for a billionaire to start his own phone company. Because right now, if you want a smartphone in America, you have to have either an Android, which is a Google product, which is extremely dangerous, or an iPhone, which is an Apple product, which is also dangerous. And both of those platforms conspired to crush Parler and kill free speech. I I said, will you build a a smartphone company? And he kind of laughed about it and la, la, la. Others have said, well, maybe we need to build our own platform. I talked about Parler. Well, he started Trump Social, but Trump Social is off to a horrible start. A horrible start. Because uh, most of the top uh, tech minds that helped build it have fled because it's, it's already just in, in a shambles. And uh, they think it's irreparable and it's not salvageable and they're out. I'm still sitting there. I was given a notification that I'm on the wait list to join, join Truth Social, which, which is uh, Trump's platform. Uh, I was given a little notification that I was 450,691 or whatever it was on the wait list. Well, here it is two months later. I haven't moved up one spot. So there's problems with that. But I remember asking him, Mr. President, we need a billionaire to buy these things to challenge these other, these, these woke leftist social media platforms, corporations, cell phone companies, and so forth. I said, can you do it? And the reality is Donald Trump couldn't do it. Because Donald Trump was worth roughly around $10 billion when he came into office. He lost some of that wealth while he was in office. He doesn't have the platform or the, uh, the financial backing, the capital to, to do this. So we needed somebody else to stop up. And lo and behold, here comes $280 billion man Elon Musk paying the ransom to release the First Amendment from its hostage takers, from its, uh, its captors. It's such an extraordinarily important story. I want to hear from you at 216-901-0945. I'm going to hear from Jim Renacy about his race for the governor's office next. AM 1420, The Answer. Spreading the light of liberty and holding the line against the darkness of tyranny. Always right with Bob France on AM 1420, The Answer. Onward at 937. Thanks for joining us on AM 1420. The answer, if you've got thoughts on the Elon Musk uh, ransom, and that's what I'm calling this. I've decided I'm going to call this a ransom. He's paying a $43 billion ransom to rescue the First Amendment from those who are holding it hostage. The First Amendment is not free. The First Amendment is indeed, uh, you know, being held down. And uh, he's he's going to buy it and free it. And I think that is a phenomenal thing. Is he a perfect uh, person to do this? No. But if you know somebody else who's got $43 billion laying around who could actually do something like this, and you want to discuss which one is the better one to take over Twitter if it happens, uh, then by all means, we can talk about that. 216-901-0945. Now, though, I want to talk about the Ohio gubernatorial race. Right now on the uh, webpage, my companion webpage to the show, alwayswrite.us, one of the lead stories 
Jim Renacci continues to rack up conservative endorsements, this time from the Greater Toledo Right to Life and the Northwest Ohio Conservative Coalition. Uh, he is continuing to gain steam. He's got the uh, wind at his back as he uh, plows forward, trying to remove Mike DeWine from the governor's office. And Jim Renacci joins us now on AM 1420, The Answer. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning, Bob. Great to be with you. Congratulations. You got polling numbers that look fantastic. The last poll that I saw, the Harris poll, showed you 46 to 30 over DeWine, just 20% in that for, for Blystone. You're getting more and more conservative endorsements from groups, from the Cuyahoga County GOP, from the Butler County GOP. I mean, this is really starting to look like what it needs to now three weeks away from Election Day. How are you feeling? Well, I feel good, but uh, I'm not taking anything for granted, Bob. We are um, continuing to be out every day. We picked up, uh, you know, additional endorsements last night. The uh, We got the Cuyahoga Valley Republican Club last night. Uh, we're, so if you start to look at some of these, Cuyahoga County, we got Butler County, Claremont County, Stanford, Ohio Health Freedom, the National Health Freedom Organization has endorsed us, Toledo Right to Life, Cleveland Right to Life, Cincinnati Right to Life. We're racking them up, but at the same time, none of that matters if people do not get out to vote. And that's what concerns me. So far, uh, as we're doing our um, absentee ballot chase, you know, the absentee ballots are down. You know, it's about 40 percent of what it was two years ago and four years ago. So I'm so concerned that people aren't voting. And my biggest concern is making sure people do get out and vote and vote for Jim Renese, uh for governor. Do you have a number uh, when you and your team get together and try to calculate these things and do the, the, the politicking of it all? Do you have a number of what the turnout needs to be where it would be in your favor versus what a turnout would be that would work against you and be in like DeWine's favor? Well, what's interesting is in 2018, the last time there was a primary without a presidential election, there was approximately 824,000 Republicans that voted. Our numbers originally had us at about 940. We thought that if there were 940,000 people, and that's the, and that really is the, um, the sample that we've been working on. Now we've added sample because we went back to 26, 2018, and believe it or not, there were people that voted in 2018 that did not vote in 2020 because of COVID. So we now have bumped our total universe up to about 1,024,000 that potentially could vote. Um, but no, the, the lower the turnout, we're not sure what it means anymore because, you know, it's, it's all about who is most, um, you know, geared up to go out and vote for their candidate. Uh, and if it's low turnout, then it's going to be whoever really pushes that vote. Now, we're doing everything we can. We've got A-B chases. We're phone calling. I think the last time I was on, I told you I hired a company out of New York that now has called through the million twenty-four thousand numbers uh, seven or eight times trying to make sure people know who Jim Renacci is. Um, We got some good numbers out of that. Even even there, we've now talked to live calls, 224,000 people live, and we're winning when you ask the question, Renacy, DeWine, or the other candidates, um, we're winning that number as well by about nine percentage points. So in the end, we just got to make sure people get out and vote. 
You know, I was talking to somebody yesterday. We're talking to former Congressman Jim Renacci, now, of course, gubernatorial candidate in the Ohio uh, governor GOP, uh, or excuse me, the Ohio uh, uh, GOP primary. Um, I was talking to somebody yesterday who said the biggest problem you continue to face is name recognition in different parts of the state. And I know that's not for lack of effort because you have been out there pounding pavement, going to meetings and town halls everywhere across the state as you are. But Mike DeWine is so known after being in this game for, what, 60 years, it seems like he's been in some office or another being a career politician. Um and the, uh, the the person I spoke with is from the Ohio Star who said, um, you know, that ad blitz that everybody's been waiting for from uh, for from you is not yet started, and that's going to be needed to really uh, bring this thing home. So, can you talk about strategy in the last three weeks? Are we going to start seeing more Renacy on TV? Are we going to be start seeing more, um, you know, hearing more on the radio? Because uh, according to according to the reporter from the Star. There's just still a uh, enough Ohioans who aren't quite on board because they don't quite know enough about you yet. Yeah, so uh, I somewhat disagree with him. Um, you know, you can put all the money you want up on TV. The problem is most Republicans aren't watching that. That's that's true in a in a general election. But let's face it: if you ask Republican households, take my household, we never watch TV. We'll watch Netflix. We'll watch you know one of the other streaming services. So TV is is in my opinion. Uh, a waste of time these days. Now, I heard, I was actually listening well, before, to you, and I heard him be, say... Okay, I was going to say, yeah, I was, uh, since you heard it, then you can speak to it, because his example, though, was in the Senate race with Mike Gibbons, who was trailing until his massive ad blitz, uh, and, he, and it you know skyrocketed him to the top of, the, of that chart of five people there, and he's still in the top spot. It's a little more narrow now, but he was introduced to the people by way of those ads, at least according to the uh, analysis of, uh, of the person I spoke with. Um, so, you know, in, in his case the TV side worked, but you don't think that's the, the right approach for you. Go ahead. Well, remember, Mike Gibbons has spent $15 million to get 20% of the vote. I mean, so there's there's a big difference. And Mike Gibbons did not have any name ID. I'm already starting with about 67% name ID. Mike Gibbons was at about 7%. So, Mike, here's the problem in statewide politics. You do need money to first get name ID, mm-hmm. and then you need uh, you need strategy to get the rest of the name ID. We, we've already run a statewide race uh, four years ago, and I, at that time I, I walked away with about 80% name ID. Now the problem is name ID dies away, and we started back out this year with about 62% name ID, where Mike Gibbons started out with 5%. So he had to build up name ID quickly. He had to try and build it through TV but again, remember, he only has 20%, you know, at this stage. So the question is, how much name ID did he build for that, for those dollars? In the end, we're trying to go after the people, the Republicans only. I mean, it's a strategy. Uh, look, on May 3rd, we'll, be term- we'll determine whether it works or not. But remember, we're going after the 1,024,000 Republican voters who we anticipate are going to vote. And I'm trying to build name ID with them. Now, um, you're right. When it comes to a general election, I got to have to go through a whole other plan. But out of those one million twenty-four thousand people, I want them to know who Jim Renacci is because they're the ones who are going to vote on May third, not the general electorate. So our goal will continue to be to push through them. And, and Bob, we're spending money. We're doing text messaging. We're doing mailers. We'll do eleven mailers to those people, those individuals, between now and the end of the, uh, and, you know, through the, now and the end of May. We're also phone calling them seven or eight times. Um, you know, we, we're up on TV. We're up on TV with just as much TV as Mike DeWine. 
And by the way, I want your listeners to know, the reason we know we're doing well is Mike DeWine just went in and did a $4 million buy on TV. So he has to be worried right now. And we're already you know up what's on strange TV about with that, her- though, Jim. You know what's strange about that, if I may? Um, again, I was talking to the reporter who brought this up that all of his ads pretty much try to show the difference between himself and Joe Biden. Because everybody knows Joe Biden is not popular. And so I'm Mike DeWine. I'm doing things in Ohio different than Joe Biden. He never mentions you. He never mentions his opponents in this primary. And, you know, the the gentleman I talked to, the analyst I talked to, said he doesn't want to give you any more, again, name recognition or any more attention than you are already getting. So he figures they can just get by with promoting the differences between himself and the Democrats, which, by the way, I think are slim, because I think he's more Democrat than he is Republican. But his strategy has been just about to ignore you and essentially think that you're not a threat. What do you think of that? Well, he should ignore me. His, his only chance to victory, look, we, we have the numbers. Mike DeWine's going to end up somewhere between 32 and 40 percent. The higher he gets, the better off he is. So he has to build up name ID, me, or um, favorability, I should say. Jim Renacia on the other side has to continue to hold his numbers and, hold, and, and try and knock down the 15 to 18% from the other challengers. The problem here, and it's so apparent, if the other challengers weren't in this, Mike DeWine is done. It's over with. And I, I keep trying to tell people that you have a candidate in, in uh, Blystone who has three, has three complaints filed against him. And I got to tell you, the Ohio Elections Commission, that's going to be one thing that I revise as governor because it's a wasted organization right now that appears to want to just push things off and push things off. Um, you know, if this hearing occurred, which it should um, in, uh, in 10 days as, as required by law, then there would be a lot of things coming out. Everything's being pushed off until after the election. And by the way, even the investigation of Mike DeWine and First Energy is being pushed off until and after the election, all to try and keep um, DeWine in place. That's the sad thing about our system. Well, it is a terrible thing about our system, and the worst part about it, and I talked a little bit about this previously, is the fact that when the investigations do happen, it's going to benefit the Democrats because it's going to be in the general you know, after going to be after May third, Mike Dewine wins the primary, and now suddenly here come all of these things about First Energy. Uh, here comes all of these uh, uh, um, investigations of uh, well, if Blystone were to win again, you know, those investigations wouldn't happen until it's time to run against the Democrat in the general, and so they benefit from this. I just don't understand the uh, the reason for pushing any of these investigations off until after an election. The people should know about these things before they cast their primary ballots. Well, it, it shows you the power of incumbency and the power of the governor. The governor does not want – look, the governor wanted this race. I, I was told time and time again, the governor wanted this race on May 3rd because he knows that Blystone's uh, candidacy will probably implode after these investigations. And he knew these investigations were coming in May and June, so he wanted it over with. I mean, I had enough intel come back to me to say the governor just wants this over with because he has to allow Blystone to stay in and take these votes from you. I'm hearing that from some of his internal people. So it's it's not like, well, you know, the the you know, Renacy's just making this stuff up. But but the numbers show that. The numbers show that DeWine can't win on a head to head ballot and he needs to split the vote to win. And that's what he's attempting to do. So it's frustrating, but look, Bob, we're gonna continue to work on those one million twenty four thousand voters. We're gonna continue to to, to push his numbers down. 
and push Blystones down and continue to talk about our message. You know, as I travel the state and I talk about what I want to do and what my message is, I have Blystone people coming up and saying, I want your signs. I'm going to vote for you. That's the goal. Now, if I had more time, this would all be easier. But I don't believe going up on TV helps us at this point in time any more than we are. By the way, we are up on TV. We are. You know where it would help you? Um, is if you were on a TV debate stage and you could somehow drag Mike DeWine up there with you. That, that to me, is one of the most frustrating things about this whole process, that the incumbent governor doesn't feel the need to share with the people of Ohio the differences between himself and Jim Renacci. And if Blystone wants to occupy a third of that stage, I guess you have to let him. But... But the fact that he won't debate and his dismissive, well, everybody in Ohio knows where I stand. Well, everybody might know where you stand, but everybody hasn't had a chance to hear you explain all of the horrible things that you've done over the course of the last two, three years. Um, and, and so the fact that you're not going to get a chance to debate him, I think, obviously is advantageous to him because I think he would be exposed in a debate. Well, you're right, Bob. When the commission announced the debate, we, we automatically said we're in. Um, when... DeWine said that he would not debate. I contacted the commission. I actually, and if you remember, DeWine said, well, I don't want to debate for an hour in front of a crowd with the booing and hissing. I mean, he basically said that. So I contacted the commission and said, look, let's do a debate um, inside, no audience, and let's force DeWine to come. And they were considering that. I mean, they said, let's look at that. At the same time, what's, what's also kind of a joke is that Nobody else had agreed to debate. I wanted that debate. I wanted Mike DeWine. And I don't care if Blystone's on stage. He would look, He would it, actually, if there was DeWine, Renacy, and Blystone, Blystone would look so bad. Um, I would love to have him on stage because he's got no policies, no principles, and no ideas. All he does is bad mouth and talk and complain. So that isn't a debate. That, that, that doesn't work in a debate. I would want to challenge Mike DeWine on all of his issues and say what I would do. And I would never let him get out, just like he's only been on stage with me one time so far, and that was a Cuyahoga County endorsement. And I was able to take everything he said and turn it right against him. I've now been on the stage twice with Lieutenant Governor Eustad, and I've been able to take everything he said and turn it right against him, because it's easy. They have no basis. They say that we're one of the greatest states for, uh, for business. That's false. They say that they're one of the most pro-life governors. That's false. They hired Amy Actons. Um, they don't have the pro-life card. They say that they're the most pro-Second Amendment, but people have to remember in 2019, he tried to push through one of the most anti-gun pieces of legislation, the red flag laws. Red flag laws, and yep. then, Right. And then he turned around, and when he didn't get it done in 19, he put it in the budget in 2020. In his budget in 2020, he is not pro Second Amendment. So I'm able to confront him on every one of those things. He did not want to stand on the stage and talk about those. Jim Renacci, candidate for governor in the uh, GOP primary on May 3rd. He's got a lot of momentum right now. If he could just drag Mike DeWine to a debate stage, it might really, really uh, bring things home. And I really I want to encourage... All of the Blystone fans who may be listening right now, and a lot of them turned me off. A lot of them said, I'm not listening to that guy anymore because I'm not supportive of Joe Blystone's campaign. I'm not supportive of a guy who says, what do I know about running a campaign? I'm a farmer, but then wants to run a, 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 a state with a multi-billion dollar budget. Um, doesn't know how to run a campaign, but he wants to run a state of 11.5 million people uh, and, and, and a multi-billion dollar budget. It's just insane to me. So I, I don't want to be at odds with them. 
most probably 90% of the Blystone supporters uh, agree with me on every issue, and I agree with them on every issue, and they agree with you too, Jim and AC, on every issue. But I think pride is in the way here, and I want to ask all of them to set aside that pride and start thinking about what's best for the state of Ohio. Their guy may have noble intentions, he may not, but he can't win. Uh, Jim Renacci can win, and the state of Ohio will win when Mike DeWine is gone. So, you know, I, I know you'll join me in, in just asking the Blystone supporters to really, really think about what's best for the state if they set their pride to, to the side. Well, Bob, I would tell you, most of the Blystone vo- voters, if not all of them, are really good people who want change. The yep. problem is you're exactly right. Agreed. They met a guy by the name of Joe Blystone, and they decided to support him. If they do a little due diligence, they'll find not only he can't win, but he has so many violations racked up against him that he may, after May 3rd, have a fifth-degree felony, which would stop him from even serving if he was so lucky to win, which he can't. But those are the issues. If you can't file a $150,000 simple campaign finance report properly, you can't run an $80 billion government, and that's the problem like I said, he had good intentions, his people are good people, but this is about, and I say this all the time, it's about coming together and removing Mike DeWine. Amen. That's what it's all about. I want everybody to understand that. You know, and I love I love the, the good conservative people who believe in Joe Blystone because they believe in the right things. They just have the wrong messenger for this right now. Uh, Jim Renacci, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. Uh, good luck uh, keeping the uh, wind at your back over the course of the next three weeks, and hopefully on May 3rd we'll get a great result. Thank you, Bob. You have a great day. You do the same. Thank you. Uh, 9.56. We're going to take this all the way to the news now. Uh, And Dr. Everett Piper awaits on the other side. Thanks for being with us on Always Right Radio. Right back. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. With Bob France on AM 1420, The Answer. Nine minutes after 10 o'clock, and hour number two is underway on this Thursday, this Holy Thursday. And of course, I wish you a very blessed Holy Thursday. We will be off tomorrow on Good Friday, spending some time with family and reflecting on what, of course, the meaning of the day is uh, as we uh, commemorate and give thanks for the sacrifice made for all of us. Uh, leading, of course, up to the Risen Lord on Easter Sunday. So uh, hopefully you'll uh, enjoy the Best Of show tomorrow, and you will take some time to reflect on what the weekend and what, of course, all of Holy Week means to you and to your family. But thank you so much for being, for being with us now. It is the 14th morning of the fourth month of the year of our Lord, 2022. And as it is a Thursday, we welcome our regular Thursday commentator uh, on all of the most important things regarding, regarding politics, faith, our culture, and more, Dr. Everett Piper. He is a best-selling author. He's a columnist for the Washington Times. He uh, is also a past university president, something he doesn't talk a lot about, but he's going to today for a very good reason. Dr. Piper, it's good to have you back on the program. How are you? Thank you, Bob. Happy Monday's Thursday to you. And to you as well. Thank you so very much. So, Dr. Piper, um, (laughs) 
the the language, the wording of uh, of the column uh, might might take people by some surprise. I guess uh, when we talk about your uh, your most recent column for the uh, for the Washington Times, but there's a there's a story here when you say that America's other mother is a prostitute. And you have, uh, you, I think you've done a terrific job of explaining what that means in the piece. But now let's see if you can summarize it a little bit for our listening audience. Well, I'd be, I'd be happy to. Um, okay, so I put other mother in quotation marks in that particular title to that article. What am I talking about? Now, all of us hold another mother in high regard. It's our alma mater. It, whether it's your high school or your college, we refer to these institutions that we graduated from as being our alma maters. What does alma mater mean? It means nurturing mother. That's Latin for alma, nurturing, mater meaning mother. So when we wear our school colors, when we call ourselves a Bruin or a Buckeye or a Spartan or a Wolverine, we're referring to the loyalty or and the affection that we have for our other mother. I'm sorry, what did you say? I apologize. I was just throwing in Sooner and Cowboy since you're out there in Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was trying to be sensitive to your backyard. Understood. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, so my point in challenging this idea of blind loyalty to our other mother, our alma mater, I'm doing so as an educator. I'm doing so as a former university president. I'm doing so from within my own industry. And as I've said on your show before, Bob, I think we have an obligation to be critical thinkers, especially within the industries that God has placed us. I think you, for example, have an obligation to be critical, constructively so, of uh, your industry, of commentators, talk radio, etc. If something's going wrong in talk radio and there's unethical behavior, you of all people have the responsibility and the obligation to call that out and say so. Well, likewise, if you're an educator, you should be at the front of the line blowing the whistle if there's something deeply wrong with education. And I believe there is. I mean, education is corrupt, by and large, in our country right now. We're producing a generation of, uh, of ideological... Uh, uh, we're producing a generation of people that can't think. They've been consuming ideological carcinogens so long in our schools that they've got cancer of heart, mind, and soul. And as you know, in this article, I call out specific examples in northeast Oklahoma where we have a school board president who is endorsing a local political candidate who identifies as bi and poly on her Facebook. We have the same school district that has a school superintendent who the day after school board elections actually had his assistant call up the Gideons, an organization that distributes Bibles, and tell the Gideons that they could no longer do so in this local school district in northeast Oklahoma. We have classrooms in the local high school, and I'm referring to my own backyard here. We have classrooms in the local high school that are flying the rainbow flag and the transgender flag in the classroom posted on the wall. I could go on and on, and I do in my article citing a lot of the problems that we have here in northeast Oklahoma the Bartlesville Public School District. Now, why do I do that? Because I think we need to go back to the analogy of the canary in the coal mine. I argue, as I have repeatedly on your show, that Oklahoma, uh, at least by definition, is supposed to be the reddest of red states, with no county going blue in four successful presidential elections. And northeast Oklahoma is the conservative corner of Oklahoma. We pride ourselves as being a bastion of traditional conservative values up here. That's why I enjoy living here. 
But yet we have this school system that's teaching this garbage. So what am I saying? I'm saying that if the Canary, Oklahoma, northeast Oklahoma, is dying, then you might want to attend to that because you put that canary down in the coal mine, and if it dies or if it's or, or if it's sick because of the noxious gases in the coal mine, you might want to stay out of there because it's going to kill you too. That is an analogy that I think is very important when it comes to education. Our other mother, our alma mater, our educational institutions is not healthy. She's been sleeping around with a bunch of ideological Johns for the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and she's got she's sick. She's sick, and she's transferring those diseases onto her offspring. And that's why we have this mess in our culture right now. It is um, very, very well stated, and uh, a lot of people probably don't know the origin of alma mater, so it's good that you explain that. Now, I I introduced you saying you're a past president of the university. You don't talk about it often, but you did in this case because you referenced, of course, um, you know, the the, the column in which, or the letter that you wrote, rather. It became a column and then became a book, but the letter you wrote to the students telling them you're in the wrong place if you think you are here to be coddled. This is not a daycare. Um, And so you do talk about your time there. Can you talk about what separated you from Oklahoma Wesleyan? Well, you mean why I left, why I retired? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not implying that I left. What I'm implying when I wrote my article, uh, my institution, my board um, didn't have that big of a problem. Some did. A couple on the board had a problem with me saying that. But by and large, my board of trustees at Oklahoma Wesleyan applauded me. I left of my own volition because I had a great run and I was done. However... What I'm saying is as a broader industry, when I wrote my article, Not a Daycare, that this is a university, it's not a daycare, if you want to be coddled, go someplace else, that was cited as one of the top ten news stories of 2015 by NBC Today. Mm -hmm. Millions of people clicked on that story. It went viral. Now, I'm not bragging, but here's the context. The context is I said something very simple that your dad probably would have said to you or your grandpa would have said to you, and that is grow up, get back on the horse. Life isn't easy. No pain, no gain. If you don't work for something, you're not going to get anything. That's basically what I said to my kids. Quit whining. I'm not going to coddle you. We're going to challenge you. I mean, I said a good sermon is supposed to make you feel guilty. I want you to confess your sins. I don't want you to feel good about them. Well, when I said that, I had millions of people, secularists, atheists, calling me up and saying, thank you for saying it, it needed to be said. But my own industry, the Christian colleges and universities, the ivory tower that fancies itself as being evangelical, started criticizing me. Not, not necessarily my own, but the industry at large. They were the ones that had difficulty with saying that. They were the ones that said, oh, you hurt the kids' feelings. Or they were the ones that said, why are you picking on us? Why are you challenging us? You know, if you're not the problem, if you're not doing anything wrong, then you wouldn't, you wouldn't even think I'm talking about you. Um, I, I almost wanted to say, and did say, quite frankly, thou protestest too much here. I mean, there's a problem if the academy is defensive when we call out the very, uh, the very issues of our day that are such a big deal. When I wrote my article, Teach Lechery and You're Going to Get Lectures, I mean, my land, the local school board and the local... Um, um, uh, public school association, the local union, mm-hmm. had a fit. They actually called for a boycott of my university because I, I dared to suggest that maybe the problem with our culture right now is we're teaching young men to be 
boorish cads rather than men of character. Maybe we ought to start teaching them a little bit about the Ten Commandments rather than how to use a condom. Maybe we're responsible for Matt Lauer and Harvey Weinstein. I dared to suggest that, and all all hell breaks loose. I mean, I'm the problem? I mean, yeah, you're really going to resolve the problem if you boycott the local Christian institution. That'll solve the problem, won't it? Yeah, you know, Dr. Piper, uh, the reason, I, of course, I brought it up, and of course, I know you left of your own volition, uh, but but there seems to be not just at the university level, and when you talk about alma maters, I guess we could talk about high school level as well, perhaps, but at the university level and at, at the high school level, um, it's not just the Catholic, or excuse me, the public schools and the public universities holding their sex weeks at the college level and holding, you know, all kinds of other very d- damaging culturally and faithfully things that, um, that, that just kind of run counter to America's values that made us what we are. Um, you know, at all of the, at both of those levels and, and really extending down even further, it's Catholic and private schools that are just as, uh, devoted to this wokeness, and I, I and I and I thought maybe I misunderstood a little bit that your former uh, university over which you presided uh, kind of started to steer in that direction a little bit too. It wouldn't be a surprise because it's happening everywhere. Catholic and other uh, uh, religious institutions that used to stand for you know church morals and 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 you know and uh, the tenets of the faith of the Christian faith uh, they've uh, kicked those to the curb in favor of wokeism. And I and I don't know if oh, that's something you, that you saw at yours as well. You, you, well. You're spot on. And while I was at the helm of Oklahoma Wesleyan University, you know, there was no way in the world we were going to turn woke or turn left. And my board knew that, and my church knew that. But you're right in suggesting this. I was finding increasingly that I had to fight against the sponsoring church of my university. Now, we were winning, enrollment was up, gift was up, debt was down, we were building buildings, and we were getting national attention. So I was safe, and I was fine. But I didn't enjoy having to fight against my sponsoring church when I said something like what I'm saying on your show today. So, yes, there was a leftward movement within the Wesleyan Church, within this particular evangelical denomination. And I was finding from church headquarters that I was getting questioned and challenged periodically, and I just said, ah, go away. I don't care. We're going to continue to do what we're doing. But your point is well taken, that even in evangelical supposedly biblically-driven environments and colleges and universities and denominations that this woke movement is very much alive and well. And yes, I did have to deal with it, even as I was a conservative Christian college president. Now, by God's grace, I was successful enough, and I had the numbers that I didn't have to feel threatened by that challenge. But I recognize that a lot of my peers out there that don't enjoy that success, they give in. They bend the knee. And then all of a sudden, this Christian school that you thought you were buying a good conservative biblical product for your kid is teaching what? They come home with critical race theory ideas, uh, Black Lives Matter ideas, LGBTQIA ideas, and you're thinking, what in the world is going on? How did that happen at this Christian school? Well, I'm glad you said that. That segues into what we'll talk about after our break here, and that is the Christian Texas School, uh, where the very head of that school has told kids that the church is normalizing the LGBTQ agenda. They are not just not condemning it. They are actually accepting it and helping to spread it. I want you to talk about that when we come right back. Dr. Everett Piper with us on AM 1420. The answer. The LGBTQ, the LGBTQ, 
issue about which the Episcopal Church has taken a very clear position. Mike Curry, who's the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, has a quote that sums up, sums up ESD's sentiments on this issue. It's a quote. LGBTQ siblings, we stand with you in this moment, and we continue to affirm that you are, and always have been, a blessing to our church. That is a little hard to hear because of the cavernous church there, but I wanted to give you that little clip. The head of school at the Episcopal Dallas Church, an Episcopal school in Dallas, Texas, announcing to the students that the church is embracing LGBTQ ideology. Uh, David Bad is his name, B-A-A-D, maybe pronounced Bad, I don't quite know. But what I do know, Dr. Piper, is that this is a pretty strong shift away from Christian teachings about uh, not just homosexuality, but about the perversion of children's minds and making them believe they're things that they are not through indoctrination. Why has this made it so far into our Christian, uh, uh, in, in, into our churches and into the Christian faith? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a half hour, an hour conversation. I'll try to answer it quickly. Okay. I believe that this started when we bought the lie that we are defined by our libido and not our Lord, that the definition of what it means to be a human being is that somehow we're the imago dog, not the imago day. that we're animals, we're defined by our gut and our desires and our inclinations, that human identity is nothing more than what you're inclined to do. You can even go back to uh, Anthony Kennedy's Supreme Court uh, decision and opinion that he wrote in 1992, where he said that at the heart of human existence is the right to define what it means to be human. That's a paraphrase, but that's essentially what he said. That's the biggest boatload of crap that it, you've ever heard uttered from a Supreme Court justice. No, you don't have the right to define human existence. God defines human existence. God defines what's human and what's not. You don't. Even Gore Vidal, a debauched hedonist, understood that there's no more such thing as a heterosexual individual than there is a homosexual individual. And then he went on to say these are behavioral adjectives. In other words, you're not defined by your libido. You're defined by something bigger and better and more grand and immutable and unchangeable than that. And Christians, of all people, should understand that that's biblically defined. Those definitions come from God, not from you or me. That your feelings don't matter. That your opinions frankly, be damned, because opinions can be corrupted by the original sin. And you can only be redeemed by going back to the definitions that God provides, rather than you claiming to be as God and rising up and supplanting God and deciding that you can define everything. That's where this all started. Like I said, this is an hour-long sermon. And what you see in the Episcopal Church is they've been drinking the Kool-Aid and they bought the lie, that somehow the human being is defined by their sexual desires, and that's all you are. You're driven by that internal, guttural, hedonistic uh, uh, drive, and that is your definition? No, I'm, I'm driven to do a lot of things that I shouldn't do, and because I'm a human being, I choose not to do them. And Lord help us, literally, Lord help us, if we define ourselves differently. And the Episcopal Church has lost its ever-loving mind and sold its soul on this altar of subjective identity claims to the point where they're actually lying to everyone and saying there is a homosexual person. No, there isn't. There's no homosexual person. There's no heterosexual person. Those are behavioral adjectives. You're a person, pure and simple. You know, I get this complaint all the time. Why are you conservatives so fixated on sex? 
I'm not fixated on sex. The left is. You're the one, the left, that always keeps bringing it up. The left is the one that keeps opening up the bedroom door and demanding that we celebrate what they want to do in the bedroom. Shut the stupid door, and I wouldn't be talking about it all the time. I'm not the one who wants to make your private behavior a public discussion. And if the left continues to open up the stupid door and force us, you and me, to comment on it, we're not at fault. We're just responding to this crazy, debauched idea that somehow the human being is nothing more than an animal, the imago dog, defined by your drives and your desires. Dr. Piper, I'm going to take one more minute here with you, even though we're up against our time here. Um, in a February poll, a Gallup poll from last year, February of 2021, more Americans identified as LGBT than ever before. 5.6% identified that way. That was up from 4.5% in 2017. I can only imagine what that number would be today, and I can really, I don't want to, but I can imagine what that number will be five years from now. Uh, are all of these people suddenly, is this, this massive uh, birth rate of, of gay people, because this is what we're told, that they're born this way and so on and so forth, or trans people who are trapped in the wrong body, or bisexual people who are attracted to different things? Are they just this mad? What changed, I guess, in human biology for all of these people to be born this way? Or maybe is this massive increase, according to the statistics, the result of indoctrination, the, the result of, of grooming, the result of teaching people and teaching young children in particular that they don't have to be what they are that they can choose their lifestyle and choose their own identity spot on uh you 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 nailed it there there is no increase in the homosexual or the trans population there's no increase what we have is the result of grooming our schools are grooming our children to think differently ideas have consequences and because our schools are grooming your children to think differently about their identity they're buying this this lie they've been drinking the kool-aid and ideas always have consequences bad ideas will bear bad fruit and that's what you see in those in those polls and in that data dr everett piper always appreciate appreciate you coming on thank you so much i wish you a very blessed easter weekend sir likewise to you thank you dr piper all right it's ten we're going to take a time out here for news at the bottom of the hour then we get to our regular friday commentator as uh, we welcome Christina Hagen. She's going to be with us coming up here in a few minutes because we are in a best-of mode tomorrow for Good Friday as everybody at the uh, Salem uh, Company takes the day to reflect and, uh, and to be with family and to uh, observe, of course, Good Friday. So uh, we have asked Christina Hagen to move from Friday to Thursday. She has accommodated us, and she'll be with us next on AM 1420, The Answer. threat to your health get your booster of common sense and keep yourself sane always right with bob france on am 1420 the answer onward now at 10 39 thanks for being with us on this holy thursday morning that good friday tomorrow will be a best of show and that's why we have asked christina hagan our regular friday commentator to join us this morning and she has been kind enough to uh accommodate us uh, christina hagan good morning how are you Good morning, Bob. I am well. Uh, as we're heading into Easter weekend and Good Friday tomorrow, I am reminded of the good news and just the eternal grace and salvation provided to us by Savior willing to bear the burden of the cross for all of us. So no matter how grim and um, disappointing and disturbing the news is with the Biden administration and across the country, 
we can rest assured that the victory has already been achieved for those who seek him through the kingdom. Amen to that. And thank you so much for that that wonderful uh, explanation. That's terrific. Uh, Having said it, however, things are a little bit uh, dicey for us right now here uh, on earth. We may we may have salvation in front of us because of Jesus' sacrifice. But uh, in the meantime, we got prices uh, high prices. We got Biden inflation to deal with. They keep calling it the Putin price hike, Christina Hagan. But whether it's the eggs or the baskets or the chocolates or anything else that might be filling Easter baskets on, uh, on, uh, Sunday morning, it is going to cost a lot more to fill them, uh, just like it is your refrigerator, your closet, and your garage. Yeah, it's absolutely upsetting. Um, but I'm reminded again by my Christian faith that we're not an escapist religion, so we still have to wade through, uh, the terrible reality of bad decisions here on earth. And, We've certainly seen those through this administration with inflation they're unwilling to answer to um, almost, you know, undebatably directly correlated with poor policy decisions, the closing down of the XL pipeline, um, the increasing of taxes, the the inability to manage just about anything well. I mean, the fact that we put people like Pete Buttigieg in charge of transportation, um, you know, we are seeing inflation across the board. Skyrocket. I mean, 8.5% over the last few months, outpacing wage gains by over 3%. So people's money in this country means less by the moment. Um, we're paying 48% more for gas. We're paying 24% more for airfare, um, 16% more for furniture, 13% more for milk. I was talking to somebody yesterday who is on Social Security, an older friend of mine, and she just said, I don't know why. I'm losing so much out of my paycheck. Every American is feeling the weight of the bad policies of this administration, and every American can tell where the weight of these bad decisions is coming from, except for the people in charge. Um, In my opinion, you know, the bird that did us all a favor and expressed our feelings toward Biden during his speech this week um, represented so many Americans and how they're feeling about his lack of accountability but again, not an escapist religion, and for somebody who proclaims Christianity, he ought to bring his full team to account. He should fire every single member of his economic advisor team. Um, none of them have done a single service to any single American, and even you know, liberal news outlets like CBS and CNN are not even covering for them at this point, with 66% of Americans declaring financial hardships. Uh, they can't blame this on Putin. They can't blame this on war. The policies that they have enacted personally and immediately upon taking the reins have inflicted severe and serious financial hardship on this country. Well, there's no doubt about that, and the people have seen it, and the people are reacting to it. His poll numbers, which have just been abysmal almost since he took office, have just continued to get worse over the course of the last, what, 13 months, 14 months now? He is now at a new low, 33% in the latest Quinnipiac uh, poll. And the numbers for the individual things, like the economy, like inflation, like the crime rate, the violent crime rate, which continues to spike in this country, are even lower than that. But according to Quinnipiac, uh, this is um, this is thirty three percent approval, fifty four percent disapproval. So that's being underwater. If my math is right, by what uh, nineteen points? Uh, that's an incredible thing uh, for a guy who's literally just started his second year in office. How can you do this badly in this short of a period of time when you are the leading, if you believe it, the leading vote getter in the history of presidential elections? 81 million right. people said this is our guy, and now he's got 33% approval. Christina, that's astounding. 
Yeah, it's it's remarkable. I mean, we're seeing um, reaction worse to that of Jimmy Carter. Um, we haven't seen inflation like this in my entire lifetime. I mean, not since 1981 have we seen such a horrific reality. And it's reflecting in the poll numbers. I mean, even you mentioned um, across the board, but independence as well, pulling at 26% feels unprecedented <laughs> to have that level of distaste um, lodged toward one single leader in American history. So I, I mean, I'm optimistic that people are waking up. They're seeing that these policies are brutal um, for us, for our children, for our future, for our ability uh, to carry forward as a nation. I mean, we cannot maintain the burden that they're saddling the American economy with tens of trillions of dollars of debt. We cannot um, out-manufacture our way out of it. And with all of their other policies on top of the inflationary reality, we can't get out of this unless we have a stark transition quickly, immediately. Yesterday, two years ago, we need to move. Yeah, completely unsustainable. There's no question about it. And by the way, I was off. I, I said that number backwards. 21% underwater overall. Uh, and in when it comes to independence, did you just mention 56% disapproval, 26% approval. That's 30 underwater. That one's easier for me to get. I was an English major, major not a math major. That's right. But that's, that's an astounding right. number. But even 30. you could be better on his economic advising team <laughs> than the class running the country. Even well, with that margin of error, you would be serving the American people far better. But you, but you know what, uh, Christina Hagen, um, if he fired his entire economic team, he'd have to resign because he is making his own calls here. I mean, he this is not something where he is having his arm twisted on what to do about energy. He came in on day one and immediately killed the the Keystone XL pipeline development and building, immediately canceled oil leases, uh, drilling leases, fracking leases on federal lands, shut down Anwar drilling. All of these things were done on day one. He knew what he wanted to do when he came in. So... Uh, yeah, you're right. His economic team is is abysmal, but uh, I, I I don't think they're dragging him along. I think this is what he wanted to do. He made this huge lurch leftward uh, because of the the direction of his party, and uh, so if he wants to blame anybody for the economic decisions that are being made here, it should start in the mirror. The buck should start with him. Step aside, and of course, I don't want him to do that because that would leave us with President Kamala. Uh, all right, right. So, <laughs> that's a worse thing, even um, scarier. It, it it really is. You mentioned his speech this week he spoke about guns as well this is another attack on on you know gun rights and the second amendment he's he's blaming the spike in crime on the weapons not on the people who are committing the crimes uh spent this big long time talking about ghost guns and we can't figure out where they've come from and talked about how you can order parts to guns on uh, online and have them delivered and then assemble them yourselves and it's always about the weapon and never about pointing the finger of blame at what's really responsible and that is the person bearing it Soft on crime prosecutors, soft on crime judges, soft sentencing on judges, no cash bails. There's a reason that crime is spiking, violent crime in this country, Christina Hagen, and it's not the weapons. It's the people who have no fear of of, uh, of repercussions. Yeah, absolutely. They are always um, willing and wanting and desiring to go after law-abiding citizens' rights, and in fact, um, with no right to do so. I mean, this is extreme breach of power, overreach of power by him. Um, by the ATF, which he so affectionately calls the AFT because he's so immensely unaware of that which he plans to regulate and destroy, and unconstitutionally so, that he doesn't even know the acronym for the agency in which he wishes to take <laughs> Americans' rights away. Um, but, you know, he, any and all of these um, decisions that they're trying to make, they're calling it the final rule, which... Like, I've never heard a more alarming um, statement, the final rule. I mean, what is, is that 
the end of all gun ownership in the United States? Is this their, their final call? Obviously, they're changing a lot of definitions of things. They're trying to make it more difficult for Americans to be able to assemble, to purchase and assemble their own firearms. Um, again, they're blaming crimes on guns um, without serial numbers. However, uh, it, they're not ghost guns that are committing the crimes. The data bears that out in every circumstance. Um, but they're just making it more expensive, more difficult, more burdensome for Americans to be able to do what we've been permitted to do since our Constitution was put into place from day one, and all of it is unconstitutional. Um, you look at the highly politicized pick that he's trying to put into place, uh, our United States Senate, our body, us as individuals have an extreme responsibility in this time frame to call and blow up their phones, um, obviously not figuratively like Madonna would call for when President <laughs> Trump came into office, right. but we should be ringing those phones off the hook and making sure that they do not confirm this person to the head of the agency. I'm optimistic that they won't, um, but still the you know, never-ending, unrelenting threat to take away the citizenry right to bear arms and without these ridiculous restrictions um, is disturbing. And as a mom, I don't want to be fighting um, some of the gravest, most evil dictators on earth with sticks in the streets defending my children. I want to be fully equipped with anything and everything I need without government restriction, with mine and my family's ability to build and be prepared to deal with the worst evils on earth. And we're not the bad guys causing problems. They're doing nothing to deter the actual problems um, in the streets. They are doing everything to deter responsible gun ownership. And this is just one more of these ridiculous attacks. And quite honestly, um, ways that they're creating tools of political prosecution to be able to attack people that aren't going their way politically. We are talking with former state representative Christina Hagan. Christina is also now a member of the Ohio Elections Commission. She is, uh, by the way, in as much. Uh, we talked about this yesterday, Christina, on the air. And then, of course, I spoke with you last evening about the lawsuit that has been filed against the elections board uh, pertaining to the um, uh, the uh, complaints against Joe, Bo- Joe Blystone uh, and whether or not this will be done and expedited before the May 3rd primary. And I want everybody listening to know I am not avoiding asking Christina Hagan questions because I don't want the answers, but as a party to this lawsuit, she has been named individually by the board, has have all, or excuse me, as a board member, she has been named a defendant by the plaintiff in this case, so she is uh, forbidden from speaking about it publicly. So for those who are wondering, when are you going to get to that? We're not going to talk about that because she can't talk about that. What I do want to talk about, though, in our final topic, Christina Hagan, is, you know, you and I have talked in, 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 at length about, um, you know, the woke uh, indoctrination and grooming of children by the Disney Corporation, particularly Disney speaking out just in in savage terms about the bill, the parental rights bill in Florida that was passed and signed by Ron DeSantis, forbidding uh, teaching of of sex, basically, any kind of sex, gay, or straight, or any other kind, um, to children ages uh, 5 through 8, K through 3. Well, here in Ohio... There's another bill, or a bill rather, that has been introduced that um, copies a lot of that and maybe even expands a little bit. It's been introduced by uh, Representatives Gene Schmidt and Mike Loichik. Um, it would ban classroom instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity from kindergarten through, kindergarten through third grade, uh, but then allow age-appropriate discussion for older students. Critics say this is too broad and it's worse than the bill in Florida. Any thoughts on it? Yeah, I think... 
it's a step in the right direction, but we have to be very, very careful when legislating not to leave anything in an obtuse fashion uh, that will and then it will always, always be exploited by the radical woke agenda. We see that every single day through the trickle-down effects in the federal government, through subsidies that we accept, through grants that we accept, and now suddenly um, there are grown men in girls' bathrooms, and all because we were not being firm with policy. So I, I recommend that they do some fine-tooth combing of the language, but I commend them on their efforts um, to protect our young school-age children, but our young school-age children are not the only children that need to be, um, that the locals need to be kept safe from this type of really, really harmful and destructive um, and not, you know, science-based, not not data-based, even in public health measures, um, but intentional destruction of human beings. And this is opposite biology. It's opposite any good moral standing. Yet, and even suicide numbers are up dramatically in these populations. And yet we're going to allow for the very thing that's causing children to choose to end their life to be forced as instruction in the classroom in some way, pretending and masquerading as a positive, positive attribute of education. We cannot allow it. Um, and quite honestly, and I mentioned earlier that Christianity is not an escapist religion. That was something that I heard um, a week or two ago that really resonated with me because as a mother in this really corrupt culture um, where there seems to be an in- intense attack from the enemy on the sexuality and the basic biology of our children, I have often asked God for this not to be our time. You know, put a hedge of protection around our kids. Do not let this evil um, agenda corrupt their understanding of who they are and who they're made in the image of. And so I think about things like this, and these policies are incredibly important, incredibly important, but we don't have an opportunity to escape it. We have a role um, as responsible citizens to ensure that the instruction that's being provided to our students is absolutely appropriate, um, both age-appropriate and true, that it's true information that's being provided. And, I mean, we're seeing, you know, not only in the classroom, but we're, we're allowing our children to watch. You and I have had discussions about the insanity of Disney, um, somewhere that we can remember some of our best times as children watching um, Minnie and Mickey Mouse and growing up with Goofy and just all of these wonderful children's classics and how um, the founder must be rolling in his grave with this complete disturbance um, for his we grandchildren come. and the heirs of the company, what they're doing to manipulate our children. I don't know if you've seen the cheaper by the dozen um, movie that's come out and just all of the woke ideology late no. through that. We have to be on guard on every front, Bob. Not going not gonna to see any of it, not going to pay any attention to it. We have come so far. Uh, in a bad way, from M-I-C-K-E-Y and the Mickey Mouse Club. It used to actually be wonderful for children, and now there's just a complete sea change. Christina Hagen, thank you so much for breaking all of it down. We always appreciate your analysis. I wish you and your family a blessed Easter weekend. You too. God bless, Bob. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's Christina Hagen on AM 1420, The Answer. She, of course, is a member of the Ohio Elections Board right now. She is a former state representative. She will be elected again to something I have no doubt of that. She has way too much to offer. Okay, 1058. 
Hour number two is just about in the books. It was a packed one. We have had guests for the last 90 minutes. We are guest-free in hour three, so this is your last chance to have your say. Whatever questions you have, whatever comments you want to make, this is your last chance to get on the air live uh, this week. Because, again, tomorrow we will be in best-of mode uh, as in observance of Good Friday. So hopefully you will enjoy some of the uh, segments that we put together for you tomorrow. Uh, but if you want to be heard today, you got a question, you got a comment, I would love to hear it at 216-901-0945. Circling back now, as uh, Propaganda Patty would do, to the lead story of the morning, which was Elon Musk and the quote-unquote hostile takeover of Twitter. Personally, I don't see an offer of spending $43 billion on this platform to be very hostile. It's actually very generous. All of the shareholders are going to be rewarded very handsomely uh, for their shares uh, through Elon Musk's money. But um, that's not the issue here. The, the cost is irrelevant because he can, he can afford that and do it six more times and never even feel it. Because he's worth around $280 billion, is Elon Musk. $43 billion is nothing for him. But it's the bigger picture. And what I want to know is from you is, have you ever been on Twitter? And did you leave Twitter because of the cancel culture, because of censorship, because of conservatives being banned and shadow banned? That's why I left. Then they banned Donald Trump, and I know millions more conservatives left. The fact that Twitter has allowed Vladimir Putin a war criminal, to keep an account on Twitter as president of Russia. And Donald Trump, the 45th president of the United States, can't have an account? It's it's astounding. Did you quit Twitter? And if Elon Musk takes over and fires the lot of the leftists who have perpetrated, or excuse me, perpetuated, excuse me, that echo chamber that they love so much by casting out conservatives, will you rejoin the platform? I will tell you right now that I will. I will make Always Right Radio uh, my Twitter account, uh, and I, I, will, I will speak freely. I will post things that I believe in, and I will not worry about being shut down or shot down by leftists in Silicon Valley. I want to know if this will be something that interests you, and do you understand the impact and the magnitude of returning free speech to the online platform that has become the virtual town hall in which we all discuss and debate what goes on in our culture? Let's talk about that together coming up. Uh, but we will treat the next hour as a free-for-all as well. So whatever your topic is, you decide to. At uh, 216-901-0945 or 888-281-1110. Right back on Always Right Radio. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. This is Always Right with Bob France on AM 1420, The Answer. 
number three, the final hour of the broadcast with you on AM fourteen twenty. The answer on this Friday, it is the fourteenth morning. Or excuse me, feels like a Friday. Beg your pardon. On this Thursday, the fourteenth morning of the fourth month of the year of our Lord twenty twenty two. Yeah, it feels like a Friday because that's our last live show. Tomorrow we have a best of show for you in observance of Good Friday, so make sure you tune in for that and spend a little bit of time, of course, over this, uh, you know, these two days, uh, Holy Thursday and Good Friday, thinking about the passion and the suffering and the sacrifice uh, from our Lord Jesus Christ. And then uh, we will all celebrate uh, the risen Lord on Easter Sunday. So I uh, really appreciate you being with us. We have plenty of opportunity for you to be heard now before we're done at 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. Uh, my apologies to Tom because I got this one just a little bit late, unfortunately. Uh, Tom sent this message from alwaysright.us. And I cannot hear Tom. I don't know exactly why. Let's try it again. Facebook page, the Always Right Facebook page. And the first one is about the ERIC database system, the electronic voter registration system that Ohio uses and needs to get rid of. The other one is the Charlie Kirk show. He's entering two people from True the Vote, and they talk about the biggest problems in, in the elections are the drop boxes and the, the dirty reg, voter registration databases that the states have. And I want you to ask Christina Hagen about those two problems because those need fixed in Ohio because Ohio's system, voter system is broken. So ask her about election integrity. Yeah, Thanks, that's, Bob. That's, uh, thank you for the message, Tom, at alwaysright.us. He's from Medina. And, uh, yeah, the reason I apologize is because I didn't see that until after Christina Hagen uh, and that interview had ended. So uh, I appreciate that. I will say this in response, uh, particularly to the last two points. I agree. They are two of the, they may not be the two biggest, they might be, but they're two of the biggest problems. Uh, the drop boxes, un- unattended, because anybody can bring anything and drop them in there. Uh, and then, of course, which includes ballot harvesting. People can just go out and, and, and collect tons of them from other people that may or may not actually be filled out by the actual registered voters and dumped into these drop boxes. Uh, and then what was the other part of that? Um, the, oh, the voter registration rolls have to be cleaned up. And, yeah, because people do. They have their, they're registered in two different places. They've moved, uh, and then they've registered, but their name hasn't been dropped off of their last location. So they get a ballot sent to them, particularly if we find ourselves in the unenviable and, in fact, disastrous position of having to use mail-in voting again. Because they'll mail a ballot to each of the locations where the person lives if they don't clean up the rolls, and then somebody gets it in the place where they used to be, and they fill it out with a scribble signature and turn it in without any fear whatsoever of being caught. But the vote counts. So, yeah, there are very serious problems like that with Ohio's election system, and quite frankly, it is the only thing, the only thing that can stop the red tsunami coming up in November. And quite honestly, I'll also say this. I'm not just worried about the general election and winning, you know, having that tsunami. I'm worried about the primaries on May 3rd. I want to make sure that the right outcomes are reached, that the just outcomes are reached, reached that everybody who wants to have a vote in these primaries does have one and it counts, but that they only have one and not more than one. So I want to make sure that everything is on the up and up, because if they are, I think there are some great, great people who can win these crucial races in the primary on May 3rd and then go on to defeat the Democrats and actually put some conservatives in charge of this state 
for or, or the representation of the state in Congress and in the United States Senate for a change, as opposed to rhinos, because I've had my fill of rhinos. The, let me let me give you a quick example before I go to your calls. I I posted this on Facebook because it just it, it's one of these things that just kind of makes me livid. Um, in the state of Kentucky, so obviously very very close just to our south. There was a bill that was passed by the Kentucky legislature that would outlaw uh, transgender athletes from girls' sports, meaning that biological males would not be allowed to compete against girls. It's something that ought to be a no-brainer in every state. But the control, the Republican-controlled legislature in Kentucky um, passed that law, or that, that bill. It needed to be signed into law by the Democrat governor. Governor Andy Bashir vetoed that bill instead of signing it. So what did the Republican-controlled legislature do? They used their power. They have a veto-proof majority. They overrode the veto. And just yesterday, the, the bill that they passed that Bashir refused to sign became law anyway, saying that boys cannot compete against girls. Bashir said, this discriminates against transgender people. No, it doesn't discriminate against transgender people. It defends the rights of women and girls to actually be women and girls and to compete as such. And that's the, the, what I get so frustrated about here in Ohio. We have a veto-proof majority as well. The Ohio General Assembly has a 61 to 38 GOP majority in the House and a 25 to 8 GOP majority in the Senate. They could get this type of bill passed, and no matter what Mike DeWine does, in, in, in a very quick and easy unified fashion, get it, uh, you know, get the veto overridden if, if DeWine did that, and they won't do it. They won't use their power. They won't use the power of their supermajority to do anything that would cross Herr DeWine. And I'm just about done with it. I'm looking for a governor who will do what Alabama Governor Kay Ivey did. Did you see this one? Alabama Governor Kay Ivey this week signed two bills related to transgender issues and sexual identities. One does the same thing Kentucky does. It outlaws transgender uh, uh, youths to to, uh, uh, compete, in other words, males against women in in sports. Um, And it does more. Two other provisions of these bills that she signed essentially codify science. They say science must be taught, not fantasy, in classrooms. It outlaws transgender youth's access to gender-affirming medication, which would be anti-science. That means hormone blockers, puberty blockers, to stop a child from actually developing into what he or she really is um, simply because of the fantasies of people who are trying to push them into being something else. The law makes it a felony to prescribe any of these puberty blockers or hormones to, to youth under the age of 19. And that's, that's, that's minimum. That should be obvious. We don't allow, we talked about this a lot, we don't allow kids to smoke until they're 21. We don't allow kids to enter into contracts until they're 18. We don't allow them to own guns until they're 18, join the military. We don't allow them to, to um, get married before they're 16. We don't allow any of these things because kids make bad decisions. But yet we're going to allow kids to make decisions on taking hormone blockers or puberty blockers that are going to change their lives and destroy their bodies. In Alabama, the answer is no, because Governor Kay Ivey is not having it. 
the Vulnerable Child Protection Act. She said, quote, there are very real challenges facing our young people, especially with today's societal pressures and modern culture. I believe very strongly that if the good Lord made you a boy, you're a boy. And if he made you a girl, you're a girl. She went on to say we should especially protect our children from these radical life-altering drugs and surgeries when they are not or when they are at such a vulnerable stage in life. Instead, let us all focus on helping them to properly develop into the adults God intended them to be. What a phenomenal statement. Can you dig it? Awesome. Yes. The other part, uh, the second bill prevents teachers from providing instruction on sexual identity to students in K through 5th grades. So this improves upon Florida's K through 3. And it is not about don't say gay. It's about don't talk about sex to children that are that young because they have no earthly business being talked to about, about sex at that age. The bill would also require students in K through 12 schools to use bathrooms and locker rooms that match the gender designated on their birth certificates. In other words, science wins. Why can't we get a governor like that here? Kay Ivey's doing it in Alabama. The Kentucky state legislature is overriding the Democrat governor and doing things the right way in Kentucky and here in Ohio are weak, pathetic, feckless, ineffective um, legislators, and that's what they all are. They continue to do nothing to cross Mike DeWine. They do nothing to advance conservative uh, principles and values, which is why they were elected in the first place. A bunch of Republicans governing like a bunch of Democrats. Why can't we do it the way they're doing it in other states? Jim is in uh, Cleveland. Hey, Jim, go ahead, sir. Hey, Jim. You got, uh, sorry, Bob. That's all right. Go ahead, yeah, you got to watch out, man, because damn pole smokers are going to come after you and shove it up your ass. Oh, stop. You, know you got to turn turn that to, to, uh, cut him off. No, we we don't we don't do that here. Uh, yeah. Well, you just ruined an entire segment for anybody else who's trying to call because we had to drop that. You cannot say things like that. I do not appreciate it. I do not respect it. And as a matter of fact, do not call this program again if you're going to use that type of language and make those types of statements. And as I cannot take another call while we have to wait for our delay system to build back up, we'll take this time out at 11:20. We'll come right back. We'll get into the more phone calls. Hopefully, much better ones than that right here on AM 1420. The answer. So I uh, I asked uh, Christina Hagen about this a little less than an hour ago. This is the kind of bill, you know, I was just complaining, why can't we do it the way they're doing it in other states? Why can't our state legislature that is uh, overwhelmingly run by Republicans, our General Assembly, why can't, and we have a governor in the White House, or the White House, uh, in the governor's mansion, who is, uh, you know, a Republican as well, at least in name. How come we can't do these things the way they're doing it in uh, Alabama, the way they're doing it in Kentucky and in a lot of other places? Well, it's not like there isn't an effort, because there is. House Bill 616, uh, which the, the left has dubbed Ohio's Don't Say Gay Bill, as they try to continue to lie. You ever notice that it's the only way liberals and leftists get any traction whatsoever on these types of conversations is when they lie? Because it has nothing to do with gayness. It has everything to do with not sexualizing children. That's it. But they called it the Don't Say Gay Bill in Ohio now. It's been introduced by Gene Schmidt and Mike Loichik. 
It's legislation that would ban classroom instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity, in other words, anything having to do with sex or sexuality, from kindergarten through third grade. Then there would be age-appropriate discussion allowed for older students. Now, critics say that it's overly broad and endangers LG. Same argument they always make. It endangers LGBTQ students. Mike Loichik responded to that by saying this is not an attack on the LGBTQ community. It's about protecting the innocence of our children and our kindergartners when they go to school. How does anybody not see that? He said students don't need to focus on these concepts at that young age. Older students can have discussions as long as they're tailored to their grade level and that the educators are well-trained in teaching that curricula. In other words, it can't just be an indoctrination session. It cannot just be some, you know, I I don't even want to describe the teachers that you see posting about their, you know, their crying fits that they're having because they're not allowed to talk to their first grade classes about their gay lovers anymore or their trans lifestyle or their pansexual children or their this, that, or the other that have no bearing whatsoever on educating the children. They're livid about this. They're so angry. We cannot have that kind of discussion or that kind of teaching going on. Now, can people talk about this? Can teachers talk about this with students in Ohio? From the vantage point of science? Sure. But talk about what a boy and a girl really are. Talk about what a male and a female are. Talk about uh, chromosomes. Talk about anatomy. Talk about physiology. And talk about people who, if they in their head, a little bit messed up about what they are because of what their body shows, that they need to get treatment, not on their body, but on their head. Psychological treatment is available for people who think they're something that they're not. People who think they're two people. It's called split personality. People who think that they're dogs. People who think that they're lizards. The stuff is real. Dr. Piper talked about last week about somebody who lives their life on their knees in in their backyard like a goat. And literally thinks they're a goat. You don't, you don't affirm that. You don't say, yeah, we're going to treat you like a goat. We're going to bad you. No, you say we need to get you some treatment because you're not really a goat. You're human. And we need to treat your mind with psycholo- psychological experts and, and psychiatric experts. But when it comes to this nonsense, we're supposed to affirm. We're supposed to say, oh, no, you know, never mind the fact that you have an XY chromosome pair. Never mind the fact that you have male anatomy. Never mind the fact that you are clearly and completely 100% male. But we're going to affirm that you're a girl. No, we're not. You need, you need assistance. You need therapeutic assistance. The Ohio bill ensures that our students, no matter what their age, are receiving an appropriate education free of indoctrination, said Schmidt. Uh, let's make sure that these concepts are taught at an appropriate age. Lojcik said he explained the bill to some constituents who were supportive once they understood that it was aimed at the youngest classrooms particularly. But critics still say it's an attack on the LGBTQ community. A community, by the way, that is so tiny and infinitesimally small until it is pushed upon children by groomers and indoctrinators that you wouldn't even know that they were there. And if they are there, they don't get to make the rules and make the 99.5% of the rest of the students uncomfortable or have to change the way they speak or talk to them. Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther, one of the worst mayors in the country, said students deserve an education that addresses diversity. And this latest bill erases LBGTQ identity. 
putting these children at greater risk for bullying and harm. It is bigotry in one of its ugliest forms. No, Mayor Ginter, Ginther, it is exactly the opposite of that. Because schools are not supposed to be forums for diversity, where people, and in particular children who are under the age of eight, and teachers have conversations about sex, sexual attraction, sexual orientation, and sexual identity. That is not what school is for. Now, I'm not trying to be old guy here when I say, you know, it wasn't one of the three R's. But when we talk about the old-fashioned reading, writing, and arithmetic, they didn't say, and trans status. It wasn't RRT. Columbus City School Superintendent called the legislation discriminatory and hateful. Yeah, because you won't let, or we won't let teachers talk to six-year-olds about their bizarre deviant lifestyle and encourage them to embrace a bizarre deviant lifestyle. That's cruel? That's what you're saying? That's discriminatory? That's hateful? No. Forcing children to ignore science. That's hateful. Forcing little children to talk about sex and sexuality. That's hateful. Forcing kids to use words that don't mean anything. That's hateful. That's discriminatory. They really need to read the bill. This is not a divisive bill, said Representative Schmidt. And she's correct. It is not a divisive bill as long as you actually aren't politically motivated as you discuss it. All right. I got time for a few more phone calls right after the news. Always right radio, AM 1420, the answer. media is always left tune your radio to the right and find a voice of reason amid the liberal chaos always right with bob france on am 1420 the answer okay eleven let let's get back to some phone calls here before we are done today and don't forget we have a best of show tomorrow in observance of good friday let's go to charlie in westlake next hey charlie go ahead sir hey bob great show Hey, one of your openings is Reagan. Reagan's speech. He talks about a thousand years of darkness, mm-hmm. and that only comes from you know slavery. And I think with the left, they hate our freedoms, all of them. They hate our freedom, free of enterprise. They hate our freedom of speech, having guns. They just hate us. They want control. And I really, really think that this this Elon Musk thing could be a pivotal change in the direction of our society worldwide if we open up. You know, against censorship. Censorship is anti-freedom, and it is a walking towards a, a walking towards uh, slavery. Every founding father talked about the need for free speech, free expression, free press, uh, in order for this republic to survive, for this republic to thrive. And thank you, Charlie. You're exactly right. Every one of them. And every, uh, you know, historian who has actually been on the side of freedom has talked about what the best way. You, you can even look into not, you know, non-free societies, into, into dictatorships. And everybody who talks about what cost them their freedom was exactly that, the inability to speak out against and be heard um, by the government. 
And this is what is happening here. Anybody who runs counter or contrary to the government's established position, the orthodoxy established by uh, the far left, the Brandon administration, and so on and so forth, it's all being checked and monitored, censored and suppressed by uh, two things, the mainstream media, the legacy media, and the new media, otherwise known as social media, the big tech platforms. They are all regulating all speech, all uh, expression, all content that does not go along with their orthodoxy. And that is the first and most important step, I think, um, if you are trying to tear down a, a, a republic like ours, that is the way that you do it. And we know that's what they want to do because they announced it. When they said they wanted to fundamentally transform America, which is fundamentally change. Transform is another word for change, to change America from something else to something they want it to be. Uh, let's go to uh, my friend Will down in Houston, Texas. You're on AM 1420, The Answer, here in Cleveland, Ohio. Hey, Will, go ahead. Hey, brother. How you doing, man? Good, my man. What's uh, up? You know, I just I wanted to, you know, it's very interesting, you know, looking at the, the, the left's reaction to to the news of um, Elon offering, you know, to, to buy Twitter, man. It's, it's, it's been hilarious watching this this morning. But you know, I, I, I kind of have a, a take, and I just want to want to see what what you think about this, man. Okay. I, I feel like Bob that this this forty billion dollars that that Elon is offering. When you really think about it, when you really think about it, social media, Twitter in particular, it's almost priceless. And, and, and why I say that, there is no other tool I think in the history of mankind that has shaped and warped the masses that has shaped and warped minds as quickly as social media has. And, and to, to the extent where, where you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have to have bills. You wouldn't have to have bills to keep uh, uh, um, certain things away from, from elementary school children. If there wasn't for social media, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, there, there was a story. And I don't know if you heard about it. There was a story where um, some transgender Inmates, transgender women, quote unquote, got were, were moved to a women's prison and got some women prisoners pregnant. I don't know if you heard. This I did story see that. Now, but you yes, I did. Yes, sir. Yeah, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Stuff like that wouldn't be possible. It wouldn't be promoted without social media and, and, and I, Twitter. In, in I have said for for quite some time now that that social media, honestly, is the biggest detriment to our culture and our society that has been created. Absolutely. Absolutely, and, and, Absolutely and I mean Absolutely. that wholeheartedly. And I say that wearing uh, uh, the the scarlet letter H of hypocrisy on mm-hmm. my chest because I use it. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, but that's part of the problem. If you don't embrace yes. it and use it, it is even more damaging, left even unchecked more, and uncontrolled. Exactly. And that's absolutely. the, that's the evil nature of it. it. It has absolutely polluted the minds of reasonable people. It has changed our political discourse. Uh, we, we have gone from being civil, even though we have disagreements, to, to uh, acrimonious and angry and violent and threatening and all of the things that come along with it, including and especially what you're talking about right now, what they're doing to our kids. This is 100% so, so percent social media. So I say that, and, and I, I say that, man, and I will be truly honestly surprised, Bob, because it's, I mean, when you really think about it, the pricelessness of it, I would, I think even if he offered a hundred billion dollars, they would never, the powers that be will never relinquish that kind of power 
they will never. Well, they're going to they're going to they're going to have to, though. Will they're going to have to people. Some people don't understand this part of it in his letter in Elon Musk's letter to the chairman of the board of Twitter. He said, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, this is my my offer is my best and final offer. And if it if it is not accepted, I would need to reconsider my position as a shareholder, which means he was he would sell off his nine point two percent that he owns and Twitter would crash. Twitter would oh. crash. It would be so. So he holds all the cards here. And by the way, oh, he's oh, not trying awesome. to get off on the cheap either. <laughs> he, he mentioned. He said, "I'm offering to buy 100 percent of Twitter for 54.20 per share in cash. That's a 54 percent mm-hmm. premium over the day I began investing in Twitter, and a 38 percent mm-hmm. premium over the day before my investment was publicly announced. In other words, he's not mm-hmm. trying to you know lower the value of Twitter by threatening it and so forth, and then buy it cheap. He is paying more mm-hmm. for it than what it's worth, and that's why he said mm-hmm. this is my only best and final offer." And if it's not accepted, mm-hmm. I'm out. And mm-hmm. watch what happens. It will all crumble. So uh, if Twitter uh, wants to stay in existence, okay. they're going to have to sell it. And it's going to become his private company, and he's going to be able to do with it what he will. Uh, and if they don't, beautiful. the whole thing is going to crash. <laughs> yeah, it is beautiful. Beautiful. So, all right, my friend. Thank you, Will. I appreciate the all phone right. call. That's, uh, that's, that's where we're going to leave it. And I apologize I don't have time for more calls. But... Uh, we are up against it, and I want to spend the last 30 seconds here again just uh, thanking you for being with us today and being with us every day and, of course, offering you and encouraging you um, to uh, remember what this day and, and this entire weekend is all about. Holy Thursday today, Good Friday tomorrow, Holy Saturday and Easter Sunday. It's the most important part of the Christian calendar. Uh, take some time to recognize and reflect on it and uh, and really enjoy the risen Lord on Sunday. Tomorrow we'll have a best of show as we uh, observe Good Friday here. So tune in for that. And until we talk again live on Monday, have a great day. Enjoy and yes, let's go, Brandon. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.